Good morning. Can you guys hear me? You know, growing up as a kid, I, I thought that I was sensitive, compassionate, and kind. But some other people, bullies, would call me a mama's boy. I loved my mom. And growing up, I remember when my mom wasn't around, I would cry. Every single time. As soon as my brain recognized that mother was not in the area, I would cry. And she would always come up to me and say, stop crying, stop crying, you're embarrassing, stop crying, don't be a baby. But whenever I saw that she was gone, I would panic and start to cry. But I distinctly remember the very last time I cried because my mom was not around. It was early morning. My mom had gone out to early morning prayer. And for some reason that day, I woke up earlier than I usually do. And I look around the house. And as I check each room and mom is not there, surely enough, my heart starts to panic. And of course, I start crying. But I remember that this was the last time I cried was because when my mom returned, she did something that she never did before. My mom walked in, I was crying. She walked straight up to me, grabbed my shoulders, looked at me in the eye, and started screaming. (laughs) Why the heck would I leave you? Why are you crying? I would never leave. I am your mother, you are my son. You see, up to that point, my mom just tried to change my behavior. Stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. But this time it was different because instead of demanding a change in behavior, what she did was she spoke a word of identity. She reminded me who I was. I was her son. And along with that identity came certain privileges, certain attitudes, certain hopes, certain perspectives, certain realities that I will live out of and have solely because of my relationship with her, because of my identity as her son. If you're visiting and you're new today, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And up to this point, Paul is talking about his life, what he is going through, and his present situation. He's in prison. And he's saying, look, the things that are driving my life, the perspective The perspective that I have on my life is all being driven by the gospel, by my gospel-shaped identity. And we get a look at what Paul says is his identity in Christ. If you can take a look at chapter 1, verse 1, when he introduces the letter to the Philippians, he introduces himself as this, Paul and Timothy, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. That's his identity. The connotation in the original language surrounding that word servant actually carries the connotation of a slave. Saying, I am a slave. That's my identity. And where we find ourselves today is where I believe to be the heart of Paul's reason for writing to the Philippians in the first place. This is the core of why he's writing. And what it is, is really a command for the Philippians to live out the realities that come along with their gospel-shaped identity. If you're truly invested in this gospel thing, he says, live like it. 
Can we all take a look at the first half of verse 27? It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, the literal translation in the Greek, it goes like this. Only this, live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's interesting that Paul would use this specific phrase to live out your citizenship. Why that phrase? And I don't think it's an accident. I think that Paul uses that phrase because he understands what the Philippians were struggling with. You see, Philippi was a major player in the Roman Empire. And historians tell us that because of its strategic location, the emperor honored the city of Philippi, gave them gifts. They got priority over the other colonies. They were shown much favor throughout the years. And so naturally, the residents, the citizens of Philippi, in turn, identified themselves as Romans. That's where all the goods were coming in through. They were first and foremost Roman citizens, and they were very proud of it. And it's important to note here that Paul is making a play on the identity of the Philippian church. He says, live your life worthy as citizens, but not of Rome. Not as citizens of Rome, but as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to the Philippians and to us ultimately that the way that we live our life, our responsibilities, our perspectives and attitudes should not be rooted in what we have going on down here, but what we have in the gospel. Our identity needs to be shaped and driven and rooted in the gospel. But what does that even look like? To live out of a gospel-shaped identity? What does that look like for us? And according to Paul, Paul tells us it's a serious calling. And luckily for us, he gets specific. Take a look at the rest of verse 27 with me. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what does it look like to live out your gospel-shaped identity? Paul says he gives us one main truth, and it's going to be played out in two different realities. He says you'll live worthy of your citizenship of the gospel when you live in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to be united. And it'll play itself out in two different realities. He says you are standing firm in one spirit, and you are striving together for the sake of the gospel. It's important to understand what Paul is actually saying here. As mentioned before, the, Philippi, the Philippians sorry, were in love with their citizenship. They were super proud of who they were. They were super proud of the fact that they could call themselves Roman citizens. And out of that pride came a selfish ambition to posture themselves over their brother and sister in Christ, the people worshiping next to them. They would compete with each other because they wanted a better title. They wanted a higher level. They thought they were better. They thought they were more capable. And so they were racing against each other, comparing with each other, living against one another. And we know that there was a spirit of selfish ambition and rivalry there. Because in Philippians chapter 2, Paul specifically calls out these attitudes. And he says, what are you doing? 
if you truly understood that gospel, those things, those attitudes must be rejected. And the question to us is this, of all the things, of all the issues that Paul could have taken issue with, why does he choose to use unity as indicators or symptoms of people who understand the gospel? The reason why I think Paul does this is this, is because in their quest, in the Philippians' quest, in their journey to advance their own interests, to advance their own agenda, to compete for their own glory, they had forgotten about what united them in the first place. They have forgotten why they were in the same church in the first place. They have forgotten that their unity was not based on their hobbies. It wasn't based on how much money they made. It wasn't based on what jobs they had or their titles of honor or respect, but they were united because of the work of the gospel. Their unity was rooted based on the truth that all of us in this room, the one thing that we had in common was that we were all lacking, that we were all sinners, that we all rebelled against God, every one of us guilty, no one completely innocent, and all in need of a righteousness that far exceeds our own and is extended to us in Jesus Christ. But can you see, if you are comparing yourself with the brother and sister next to you and thinking that you're better, you have forgotten about the heart of the gospel. That kind of attitude goes directly against our identity. I recently had the privilege of helping out with a classroom with students of special needs, and there are about 12 students in that class. About eight or nine of them were students diagnosed with autism. The other couple students were just there because they couldn't keep up in a regular class. They were learning at a slower clip and pace. And so they were in that class. And as days and weeks went by, I started noticing that one of the female students on our walk to the cafeteria for lunch started deviating from the rest of the group. She went rogue, just going off on her own. And so the next day, I started walking with her. And I asked her the question of, hey, why are you taking the long route? Why are you going the long way around? To which she answered, because I don't want to be seen with the other kids. I was like, who are you talking about? Like, those kids, they're weird. They're embarrassing me. I don't want my friends to see me with them. I'm better than them. To which I reminded her, but we're in the same class. You're in that class. So I don't belong in that class. That class is for students like them, not like me. But you're in the class because the teacher said that you took a test, and so you deserve to be in that class. Say, like, no, I'm smarter than that. I need to be in a different class. I just, I wanted to grab her and scream. <laughs> Can't you see that you're in that class? That you have no grounds to look down on them because we're all on the same level. We're all in the same class. And here's where I want to translate this over because so many times there's this sneaky temptation for us to look at the people that we're worshiping with, the people that we go to church with, 
And we can think to ourselves, we're so much better than that person. It could be based on superficial reasons. I'm better looking than that person. I'm richer. I'm smarter. My children are smarter. My children are cuter. We have better stuff. You could think that those things make you better. It could even be spiritual, where you look at the way they worship, and you're like, why do they worship like that? They're so weird. It's so distracting. Or, why does that person worship like that? They look like a robot. Their hands are in their pockets. They don't even move. How come they're always so late to service? How come I never see them at a Bible study? How come they don't serve? And one can clearly see how these attitudes create a culture of disunity. And for Paul, a culture of disunity rooted in attitudes of superiority over our brothers and sisters was a clear indicator that they did not understand the gospel. That at the foot of the cross, everyone was equal. No one is higher than the next. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners in need of grace, and it has been extended to us in the work of Jesus Christ. We're all in the same class. And it's not just standing in unity that Paul is concerned about. He also commands us to strive to move forward together. The language here is usually used in the context of athletics. It's like teamwork. He's talking about sticking together as a team and bearing with one another's, one another's weaknesses and patience and in joy. It's not like we're on the same team and we see this guy bring the team, slowing the team down. We're like, dude, you suck. Hurry up. You're slowing the team down. No. He says you need to be patient with them and bear his weakness. Sacrifice what you have for the sake of your brother. He's talking about being gracious and walking with each other despite our differences. We're all different. But he says, focus on the one thing that unites us. Paul says, this is the bedrock. This is the basis. This is the cornerstone. This is how we live out our citizenship worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By standing in unity out of the grace that is shown to us by Jesus Christ, but also moving forward together despite our differences. And Paul will go even deeper And he will continue that idea by saying that this must happen, that this unity must always be present in every and all circumstances. Even and especially when we are facing opposition, pushback, persecution, suffering of any kind. Take a look at verse 28 with me. He says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Here, what Paul is doing is he is giving us another reality that a gospel-shaped identity will produce in our lives. And what Paul expects to see is this. If you live out of your gospel-shaped identity, I will see a people who have a fearless courage because of the work of the gospel. In other words, if you believe in the work of Jesus Christ, If you believe that you are a son and daughter of Christ, that you are a citizen of heaven, then you need to be fearless, regardless of the situation, regardless of what pushback you may see, regardless of the opposition you may see. 
And for the Philippians, this would have hit home hard. Because living in a culture where they took exceptional pride in their identity as Roman citizens, one of the ways that it played out was they would have to acknowledge the emperor as Lord and Savior. That was one of the perks and benefits of being a Roman citizen. But get this, the term that they would use to proclaim and honor the emperor as Lord and Savior is the same term that is reserved for Christ, for the Christian. And so refusing to call the emperor Lord and Savior because that title was reserved for Christ would definitely bring persecution from the Romans. They would have seen it right away. And yet, even in the face of that, Paul reminds them to not only stand in unity, but to be fearless. Don't you back down. Last week, we had the privilege of listening to Jeff King and his stories about his friends. Friends who faced the persecution that you and I only hear stories about. That's to us, they're just that, they're stories. Stories of his friend who sang hymns while sitting under the heavy sword of a Boko Haram foot soldier. Stories of a pastor friend who toward the end of his life started to isolate himself from his family and friends because he knew that his time was coming and he didn't want his loved ones to pay the price. What would provoke these people to act this way? Only this, they understood that to live worthy of the citizenship of the gospel of Jesus Christ meant that they be courageous and fearless. And for us, we hear stories like that and we're like, oh man, that's intense. That's a little extreme. And this concept is a little difficult for us to grasp at first because most of us, to be honest, are not going to wake up tomorrow and think, man, I hope I don't die today because I'm a Christian. We don't face that kind of circumstance. But I do think that you and I still need the same courage and confidence in Christ in our own context today. Because there is a fear that we face. I would argue that we need the same courage and confidence in Christ and in our gospel-shaped identity to overcome the simple fear of even sharing the gospel with our neighbors, our friends, our family members, in our workplaces, to proclaim the name of Christ boldly. Because the fear is there. I work with youth students. I know. The fear of looking awkward. The fear of being isolated the fear of saying the wrong things, the fear of not looking cool, the fear of looking like a fool, the fear of not getting ahead because I'm living what Christ told me to live. And again, why does Paul equate living out a citizenship worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ with being fearless in the face of opposition? Why does he connect the two? Because Paul understood To be fearless for the sake of Christ requires an understanding of the gospel where we hold and treasure Christ as our ultimate treasure. And that all treasures here on this earth do not even come close. In other words, if the gospel is driving your life and it's shaping your identity, then that means you truly believe that your reward and your future in heaven far surpasses 
all of the comforts and conveniences that we have here. If we truly believed that heaven was better, if we truly believed that Christ is better, then what really would there be to fear? What really would we be so afraid to lose? Nothing. We would understand what Paul says when he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We would be like Paul in that we could never be conquered. We'd be fearless. In fact, I wonder if this is what Paul meant when he wrote in verse 28. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is he saying? I think what he's saying is that our unrelenting and stubborn fixation on Christ as our ultimate treasure would be a sign to the non-believer that they're missing out on something. That our fearlessness and our courage, when they see it, they would think, what, what, what don't I get here? What am I missing? Can you imagine the frustration of those who wanted to persecute Paul? They say, let's throw him in prison. And Paul says, great. Do you know what happened last time I was in prison? All the guards became Christian. Let's go. They're like, what? What's this guy doing? Let's put him in the furnace. Put him under the sword. And Paul will say stuff like, to live is Christ, but to die is even better for me because that means I get to be in the presence of Christ. To the persecuting party, they would see this and ask themselves the question of, what does this Christian know or believe that I don't know? that he would be able to live like this and even die like this. To them, it would be a clear picture of what they're missing out on, a better life on the other side of death that is certain and waits for the believer because of the victory of Christ over death. Paul says that our courage is a sign of direction or destruction for those who oppose us, but for us, our courage is a reminder of our salvation. Because every time in the face of opposition and suffering, we are reminded of what we have. We are reminded of the certainty of communion with Christ. We are reminded of God's saving work with us, for us. And I wonder if this is the very reason Paul will go as far to say, he goes even deeper, and he'll say, if your identity is a gospel-shaped one, then you will understand and see that suffering is a gift. It's actually a privilege if you really understand. Take a look at verse 29 and 30 with me. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You know, the phrase that Paul uses here is very funny. He says, it has been granted to you. You're welcome. It is the language that Paul uses when he is talking about giving gifts to people. So essentially what Paul is saying is, hey, the marginalization, the awkward eye stares, the isolation, the oppression, the insults, the the point of fingers, the judgment that you and I endure on the way to living out our gospel-shaped identity to further the cause of Christ, all of those things granted to you. It is your privilege. It is your gift. And the reason why Paul could see it like that 
was, I believe, is because every time he was cast aside and mocked and insulted, it was an opportunity for him and for us to remind ourselves of the hope and security that they could not take, that we would surely have the grace that we had been shown, the mercy that we were extended, the love behind the cross that we hide behind. It was an opportunity for all of us that regardless of our current struggles, no matter how big or how small, we can rejoice in the hope that we have because of what God had done, what he is doing now, and what he will do for us. Friends, can we ask ourselves the hard question of this. What is driving your life? What shapes your perspective? What shapes your attitude? What shapes your values? What shapes your hopes? What shapes the plans that you make for yourself, for your loved one? What gives you your identity? Is it your title at your work? Is it the promotion that you're working for? Is it your children? Is it your salary? Is it the way that people look at you? Maybe you and I are here today and you genuinely want to be able to say and do the things that Paul says and does. You hear it and you want that for yourself to count others better than ourselves for the sake of unity. We want to be able to bear with each other in patience and in joy, even when that brother or sister is just so annoying and so difficult. We want to be able to be fearless for the cause of something that is greater than our own life. We want to be able to be certain of the hope that awaits for us after death. We want to be able to live out our gospel-shaped identity. But the truth is, that we hear these things and it's so hard for us to start. It's so difficult for us to take the first step because all we can see in our mind is the thing that we are about to lose. It's so tangible and real and we can hold it and we think that we have to give up those things and it's not worth it and so hard. Can I end our time together by asking us to retreat back to the bedrock, to the basis, to the cornerstone, to the commonality that you and I share. Can we retreat back and think about the gospel? And that the gospel tells us that Christ took the first step so that you and I didn't need to. That you and I can count others better than ourselves because he shows us how to count us better than other, than other people. He showed us in the work of the cross. He shows us how to continually bear patiently because he bears patiently with us. Not in frustration, but in a fatherly joy and love. He counted the cost of our sins and he paid for it on the cross. You and I can be sure that because of his resurrection and his victory over death, the hope of new life that you and I have on the other side of death. Could we remember and find ourselves at the foot of the cross today? Not just today, but every single day. 
and to live out the realities of our gospel-shaped identity in the way that we love one another, in in the way that we bear with one another, in the way that we encourage one another, in seasons of prosperity, but especially in seasons of need and want. Could that be our prayer today? Let me pray for us and end. Lord, we want to thank you for this time, and we want to thank you for the word and, and for the work of the Spirit. God, in things that I may have just not been so clear on or, or that, I may have bought, that I may have botched, I pray, Lord, that your Spirit will come and just do the ministry of conviction in our lives in every single heart today. God, help us this week to continually retreat back to the gospel, the good news that unites us all, and to continually draw out our identity based on the work of the cross. God, give us strength, give us courage to be able to do so. We love you so much. Help us to love you more. We pray all of this in your son's name.